Sabbath. I'm going to ask the back row to be very brave. And not, not just the back row, but there's some empty seats in the front. There's some more people who are going to be coming. So if you could be so kind as to kind of shift up, those of you who are brave enough to well, look away. <laughs> if you could just kind of shift up, um, that way more people who are coming can, can sit in the back without having to feel embarrassed to come to the front. Um, while you do that, I will just um, say happy Sabbath and welcome to all the visitors who are here today. Um, I know that it's a time of year when people like to come and visit maybe for the tennis um, or maybe just to experience the extreme heat and cold of Melbourne weather. But uh, whatever it brings you here to Melbourne, we're very glad that you could come and join us um, and be with us. We have a lot of people who are traveling, so if anyone is watching online, um, happy Sabbath to you as well. The question I have for you today is, do you feel like you belong? Do you feel like you belong? To belong means to be a member of a group or a team, to feel like you're a part of something, to feel like you're connected to people, to feel like you're part of a whole. And the truth is, no one can belong everywhere. That's impossible, right? But it's important for us to belong somewhere. And the question is, do you feel like you belong? Do you feel like you belong in Australia? You know, um, as you can tell, I'm American, for those of you who are visiting for the first time. But I am actually also Australian. Um, I became an Australian citizen last year. Um, but, you know, people both in Australia and America will ask me, where are you from? Because I don't. They think I don't look Australian or look American. Um, and, you know, I have to be like, yes, I am Korean, you know. Um, but now I'm like Korean American Australian, so it's confusing for everyone. But what about you? Do you feel like you belong in Australia? Interestingly, the World Values Survey, um, ever since like 1981, they've been doing these surveys all over the world asking about pride in nationality. And they ask these three questions. To what extent do you have a sense of belonging in, you know, in this case, Australia? To what extent do you have a sense of pride in the Australian way of life and culture? And do you agree with this statement? In the modern world, maintaining the Australian way of life and culture is important. And, you know, Americans are often stereotyped as being very nationalistic and, you know, Australians like to kind of um, give, us, give Americans a hard time about their pride and nationality. But I was very surprised by the results. Can I get a guess of what percentage of Australians do you think they basically combined the scores, um, however they do the math, and they come up with a percentage of Americans who have, who have pride in Australia. And there's categories of very proud, quite proud, and then, you know, it goes down from there. And so my question is, how many... What percentage of Australians do you think that they're very proud of being Australian? Any guesses? Any takers? 90. Oh, very high. No, Daniel says now. What, what do you think, Daniel? Throw out a number. <laughs> well, it turns out I was quite surprised that 70% of Australians said they're very proud and 25% they're quite proud. In other words, 95% said that they're quite or very proud of being Australian and, and have a very strong sense of pride in their nationality. Um, only 4% that said that they're not proud. So in the scale of, you know, um, which is very surprising, especially compared to uh, Americans. 50, only 56%, and this is before Trump, okay? So this is um, 2010, 2014, so I'm sure that might have gone down. But 56% um, of Americans only 
said that they're very proud and you know there's varying levels for the other. Um, and if you look at some of the other countries, just as a point of reference, 40% Swedes, 29% Russians, 24% Germans. So Australians are actually very nationalistic. But there was a big health survey that asked the question, um, basically, they're trying to figure out, is there such a thing as an ethnic or racial group that doesn't belong in Australian society? In other words, do you feel like everyone belongs here or do you feel like some people don't belong? And according to this survey in 2006, they found that 40% said some people don't belong here. So if you combine those two statistics, most people feel like they belong, but a lot of people feel like others don't belong. It's an interesting thing for us to think about as we approach Australia Day and have further dialogue in the weeks to come about what it means to be Australian um, and what it means to have a sense of belonging and to extend that sense of belonging to others. So something to think about. Do you feel like you belong? Do you feel like you belong in this culture? Do you feel like you belong in your workplace? Do you feel like you belong in your classroom? Do you feel like you belong in your family? Because many times, even though that's a place that should be a place where you feel like you belong, the, the case is many times it's not. For the next few weeks, we're going to be doing um, a series on the life of Joseph. Joseph was a man who lived in ancient Mesopotamia in the 18th century, which is kind of uh, this area. And um, we're going to be doing a series on his life, and he's a very interesting character in the Bible because um, we actually have a lot of information about him. He's one of the few characters in the Bible that have several chapters dedicated to his life, which is very unusual. But Joseph was someone who didn't belong in his own family. Sadly for Joseph, his mother died when he was quite young, giving birth to his little brother. So he grew up with his, um, I guess his stepmom of sorts, um, although she had already, always been in his life because um, his dad had two wives. Um, and he grew up with his little brother, but mainly his 10 older, stronger, meaner brothers. And unfortunately for Joseph, not only did he have to grow up with his brothers disliking him, you know, he, he's from a different mom and his father, um, unfortunately, as, as good as it is to be loved by his father, unfortunately showed blatant favoritism. And so he might as well have painted a target sign on the back of Joseph when he gave Joseph this special coat. You might have heard of it, this coat of many colors. And, you know, to us, that just, you know, okay. But back then, you know, in order to get the sheep and dye it different colors and weave it, it was a very expensive, very special, distinguished honor to give that kind of, of coat of many colors to someone. So imagine how his brothers felt when his father made it for little Joseph, bypassing all 10 of them. And so they really didn't like Joseph. To make, to make matters worse, Joseph maybe didn't, you know, he was young, he was immature, and uh, I'm sure he had good intentions, but he would always tell daddy when the older brothers were doing something wrong. And who likes a snitch, right? <laughs> and so they hated, hated Joseph. And poor Joseph, I don't think he had figured out life and EQ and all that. So then he is um, unwise enough to also tell his brothers that one day he had a dream that they were all going to bow down to him. 
<laughs> so they really hated Joseph after that. So as much as they could, they would exclude him. Whenever they could get away, they would leave him home, and the ten of them would just head off by themselves. And little Benjamin was too little to play with, so you can imagine Joseph was quite alone in his own family. His brothers hated him so much that one day when he was sent by his father to find his brothers, because they lived here in Hebron, and his brothers were supposed to go to Shechem because they were shepherds and, you know, the sheep need to wander and find pasture. Um, and they were supposed to come home, but they hadn't come home yet. His brothers had a, quite a reputation for parting it up and, you know, going, going and doing things they weren't supposed to do. So after a while, the, you know, their father gets worried and says, hey, Joseph, why don't you go look for your brothers? I want to make sure they're okay. So Joseph's like, sure, travels to Shechem and finds out, oh, they're not there. And the, the people said, oh, they went to Dothan. So he goes to Dothan. And this is where we pick up the story. And if you have a white Bible, I'll have the text on the screen for you as well. But I want to invite you to uh, turn with me. In the white Bibles, it's page 25. Or if you're reading um, from the text, um, sorry, page 23. Oh, 30, sorry, I gave you the wrong page number. It's page um, 37, 34. Sorry, page 34. It's Genesis 37, uh, verses 23 to 28, and it's page 34 in the White Bibles. And it starts, um, uh, sorry, I'm just realizing that I might not have the right reference up there. Um, but it says that when... In verse 18, when Joseph's brother saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance, and as he approached, they made plans to kill him. Here comes a dreamer, they said, come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns. We can tell our father wild animals eaten him, then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. And we'll skip to verse 23. So when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing. Then they grabbed him and threw him into the cistern. And now the cistern was empty, there was no water in it. Then just as they were sitting down to eat, they looked up and saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. It was a group of Ishmaelite traders taking a load of gum balm and aromic resin from Gilead down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain by killing our brother? We have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother, our own of flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold to them for 20 pieces of silver and the traders took him to Egypt poor Joseph can you imagine your own brothers you know you're so happy to see them finally after days of traveling and looking for them and the first thing they do is they, they did was grab him tear off his robe throw him down in this well and maybe at first he thought all right well they'll do this for a while and then they'll let me out but then they sell him as a slave. And the ironic thing is that they sell him to the Ishmaelites. Who are the Ishmaelites? You see, there's a history of family violence um, for, in Joseph's family line. His father, uh, Jacob, had to run away from his own brother Esau, who was trying to kill him. And his grandfather, Isaac, had a half-brother, Ishmael, who also was trying to harm him when, when Isaac was a little boy and they had to send Ishmael away. And it's Ishmael's 
descendants, the Ishmaelites, that Joseph is sold to, his own relatives, and the Ishmaelites drag him 300 plus kilometers to Egypt. Can you imagine the thoughts and the feelings that went through Joseph's mind as he's being dragged along, never to see his family again? No way of escape. Right? How could they do this to him? Why did they hate him so much? Will we ever, would he ever see his father again? And where was God? We're going to answer that question down in a few weeks when we, when we address the question of why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? But for now, I want us to, to think about Joseph as he's on his way to Egypt, right? And, and the people who are taken as slaves, there are usually two types. One were prisoners of war, right? You, there's a battle and you lose, you, you become the slaves of the conquering nation. Or... Um, you have debt that you owe and you, you can't pay it off and you can't, you can't work it off, then you have to become a slave and you have to basically, you know, your life is now in the hands of, the, of your master. But here's Joseph. He doesn't fall into either of those categories. He was a rich, spoiled kid. Okay? His father was a rich man. So he, he grew up, you know, his brothers tended the sheep and he kind of grew up, um, you know, learning about God and just kind of following his dad around and not, not, you know, he helped out, but he was only 17 years old. And so he wasn't, you know, growing up to be doing hard labor. So here's this young boy who, you know, really grew up in the shelter of his, of his father's love and care being taken as a slave. How terrified he must have been. When he gets to Egypt, it says that the Ishmaelites took Joseph and sold him to Potiphar, the king's official in charge of the palace guard. So Joseph lived in the house of Potiphar, his Egyptian owner. You know, Joseph didn't belong there. Like I said, he wasn't used to hard labor. He didn't know the Egyptian language. It would have taken days and weeks and months of him being, I'm sure, very harshly treated by his Egyptian taskmasters as he tried to figure out what was going on, as he tried to keep up with the hard work that he just wasn't used to doing as a 17-year-old child. Right? He didn't belong there. How would he cope? You know, it's amazing to me that in the midst of the greatest injustice and suffering, Extraordinary men and women rise above their circumstances to change not only their own life story, but the course of history. And how do they do it? I don't know if you knew, but this past week, uh, the 15th of January was Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. Um, in America, we celebrate that as a national holiday um, every year. And because I'm, you know, I have American friends and I'm, I'm American, um, a lot of my Facebook feed, you know, was about Martin Luther King Jr. and it was a really good reminder to go back and think about his life and to, and to think about his legacy. And I happened upon, uh, I'm sure, as I'm sure you're aware, Martin Luther King Jr. not only was a, um, an amazing civil rights activist and leader, um, but he was also a pastor. Right? And so, he, you know, his, his very famous speech, I Have a Dream, uh, that was in front of, you know, the, um, the White House and, um, and all that, you know, it's very well known, but his sermons are not as well known. They're, they're on YouTube. You can still find them and you can still listen to them. And um, I was listening to one of his sermons called, But If Not. 
but if not. And he basically was preaching about there were these three Hebrew boys um, much later in history um, who basically were taken captive to the foreign land of Babylon. So just like Joseph as a young teenager was taken out of his home and, and, and taken away, these three Hebrew boys were also as young teenagers taken from their home and taken to Babylon. Um, and while they're there, um, they're asked to worship this golden image. And these young boys, they say, well, they're slightly older by that point, but they basically say, we are not going to worship. And then the king says, well, yeah, well, then I'm going to throw you into the fire furnace. And the three men say, you know what? God is able to deliver us from the fire furnace. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow. And Martin Luther King Jr. takes that story and he preaches about it. And, and there's, a, there's a last five minutes. I tried to condense it as much as I could, but he's such a powerful speaker that I, I wanted you to hear from him. And there's no video, it's just audio. Um, but I want you to hear what he says about what it means to belong, but also what it means to have that kind of faith that no matter what circumstances, no matter how much you don't fit in, no matter how uh, much of a hard time you're going through, um, how you're actually not alone. So James is going to ask you to play the clip and just listen to what um, Martin Luther King Jr. had to say. That ultimately, religion is not a bargaining matter. Yes. A lot of people bargain with God. If you just let me avoid pain, God, if you, if you allow me to be happy in all of its dimensions, if, uh, if, if you don't allow any suffering to come, if you don't allow frustrating moments to come, then uh, I'll, I'll be all right. I'll give you a tenth of my income and... I'll go to church and I'll have faith in you. But religion is not a bargaining experience. It's not a commercial relationship. And you know no great experience exists in the bargaining atmosphere. Think of friendship. Think of love and think of marriage. These things are not based on if. They are based on though. And I want to say to you this morning, my friends, that somewhere along the way, you should discover something that's so dear, so precious to you. Is so eternally worthful that you will never give it up. You ought to discover some principle. Yes, sir. You ought to have some great faith that grips you so much that you will never give it up. Never. Somehow you go on and say, I know that the God that I worship is able to deliver me, but if not, I'm going on 
anyhow, I'm going to stand up for it anyway. These boys stand before us today, and I thank God for them, for they had found something. The fiery furnace couldn't stop them from believing it. They said, throw us into the fiery furnace. Yes, sir. But you know, the interesting thing is, the Bible talks about a miracle. Because they had faith enough to say, but if not, God was with them as an eternal companion. And this is what I want to say finally. That there is a reward. If you do right for righteousness' sake, it says that somehow that burning, fiery furnace was transformed into an air-conditioned living room. Somebody looked in there and said, we put three in here, but now we see four. Don't ever think you're by yourself. Go on to jail if necessary, but you never go alone. Take a stand for that which is right. The world may misunderstand you and criticize you, but you never go alone. For somewhere I read that one with God is the majority. And God has a way of transforming a minority into a majority. Walk with him this morning and believe in him and do what is right. And he'll be with you even until the consummation of the ages. Yes, I've seen the lightning flash. I've heard the thunder roll. I've felt sin breakers dashing, trying to conquer my soul. But I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still to fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. No, never alone. No, never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. Where are you going this morning, my friends? Tell the world that you're going with truth. You're going with justice. You're going with goodness. And you will have an eternal companionship. And the world will look at you. And they will understand you. For your fiery furnace will be around you. But you go on anyhow. But if not, I will not bow. And God grant that we will never bow before the gods of evil. powerful preacher, yeah? I like what he said, that even if you go to jail, even if you're going through a fiery furnace type of experience, you're never alone. You're never alone. And when we go back to Joseph's story, you know, Joseph ended up going to jail, um, as we'll find out. And, and Joseph ended up going through, you know, so much hardship, but he realized something. Even though he was a foreigner, even though he was a slave, even though he wasn't where he was supposed to be, that God was with him. And so with God by his side, he wasn't alone. 
And not only did he realize that, but because he lived for God, because he did everything in his power to glorify God and to focus on others, and he committed himself to him, it says that everything he did actually prospered in his hands. You see, because when we belong to God, and when we realize that we actually matter to him, we're able to find that sense of belonging that make, gives us that strength and courage, not only to go through our own troubles, but to then look out and, and help others belong. Joseph was separated from his adoring father and country and home, but because God was with him, he realized that God was all he really needed in order to have that strength and courage to keep going. And so he didn't give up. He could have despaired. He could have, you know, just done the minimum just to get by. But instead, he worked hard. He went out of his way to be excellent in everything he did. He won people's confidence and trust, even though I'm sure at first he was rejected many times. And I don't know exactly how many years passed, but we know many years passed. And not only did God real, uh, Joseph realize that God was with him, but the Bible says that Potiphar realized, his, his master realized that the Lord was with him. Because everything he did was successful, Potiphar liked Joseph and made him his personal assistant, putting him in charge of his house and all of his property. Because of Joseph, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's family and fields. Potiphar left everything up to Joseph, and with Joseph there, the only decision he had to make was what he wanted to eat. But you know what? Even though God was with Joseph, that didn't mean that everything went well. God did bless him, and he gave him that courage, and he gave him lots of things to, that he could see was successful. But then we, we get to the next part of the story, and not to get into too much detail, but basically um, Joseph gets sexually, uh, sexually harassed, assaulted, and then falsely accused of assaulting her, and then gets thrown into prison by the very man who he just made rich. And that twist in the story would make all of us kind of be like, wait a second, I thought, I thought you know, I, I finally made it after all these years. I'm, I'm finally, you know, in a stable condition. I have a place, I belong, and I'm doing well, everybody likes me. And then to be thrown, not, and he went from being a slave to worse, right? At least as a slave, you're breathing fresh air. Now he's in jail. And, and I don't know about you, but, but I certainly would have at that point questioned God, if, if not before, when sold as a slave, betrayed by my own family. Now he's been betrayed by his, his master and friend. And even in jail, he's betrayed by other people, which we won't get into. But you know what? Through it all, Joseph holds on to that faith that Martin Luther King Jr. was talking about, that though faith, that even if not faith, even if things are not going the way that you want it to, even if your prayers are not being answered in the way that you want to, that you still believe that God is with you. You still believe that God has a plan. You still believe that God cares about you, that you belong to him and that he's got you, that he's got your back. The Bible says that when Joseph was in prison, the Lord helped him and was good to him. He even made the jailer like Joseph so much that he put him in charge of the other prisoners and of everything that was done in the jail. The jailer did not worry about anything because the Lord was with Joseph and made him successful in all that he did. Even in jail, Joseph decided, you know what? I'm going to... Hello. Want to take him? <laughs> even in jail, he decided that um, no matter what, right? Even, even though he was 
in a place where he didn't belong, right? A jail is a place for guilty people, and he was definitely innocent. But instead of focusing on what he was missing out on, he decided to think about what he had. And he had God with him. And he had, um, and that made all the difference. That made all the difference. We're going to find out in the weeks to come that because of Joseph's sense of belonging in God, he created a space wherever he went where he could belong. And ultimately, he gets married. He gets out of prison. He gets married. He has two kids. He becomes governor of Egypt. And eventually, he gets reunited with his brother and father. But that's a story for another time. So what can we learn from Joseph? When we don't belong somewhere, right? whether it's in your own family, whether it's in your workplace, whether it's in your own culture, um, wherever it is, right? when you don't feel like you belong, remember that you belong to God. Remember that you plus God is a majority and that you can have that confidence with God that you're never going to be alone, that you're never um, not where you're supposed to be. Even if you're in jail, even if you're in a place where you feel like you know, you're cut off from society, you're cut off from everything, even then God is with you. We can be in a crowd of strangers but have assurance that we aren't alone. We may be overlooked, we might be discriminated against, but we know that we have worth when we realize that we, are, we belong to God. We can stand up and be counted, and we can speak up for justice and truth, even if that brings criticism and unpopularity. And we can make space for others around us who don't feel like they belong. Have you heard of Akhil Sharma? He is an Indian-American um, novelist who has won many awards for his writing, and he, he speaks about his experience as an immigrant. Um, and this is a short clip that I want to show you. Um, and he just talks about I, I, I really like his definition of belonging. And James, if you could play that for us. We end this week with one immigrant's take on belonging. Award-winning novelist Akhil Sharma is a professor of literature at Rutgers University and a contributor to The New Yorker magazine. He offers his humble opinion on opening up to understand the experiences of others. People ask me all the time if I feel more Indian or more American. When I was younger, if an Indian were asking, I would say American. And if it were American, I would say Indian. I did this because I wanted to bother people. I was unsettled, unhappy, irritable. And my taking the opposite of whatever the questioner was, was a way of unsettling him or her, making the person anxious about his own sense of home. Now, when people ask me the question, I say, I'm American. So what happened? I think I became a little bit less selfish. I grew up in a family where there was a lot of physical illness. As a child, I spent years in hospitals. I grew up feeling desperate, having the sense that there was only a limited amount of happiness in the world, and I had to grab whatever I could. In my 30s, after decades of being hurt and angry, I decided I can't go on like this. I have to change. I have to change in every possible way. I remember one Monday morning, I was in the elevator of my apartment building, and I was going down, and a woman got in, and I asked her how she was doing. Not well, she said. Mother of God, I thought. I have my own problems. What's the matter, I asked, because this was the polite thing to say. My son, he's a paranoid schizophrenic. He's 13, and he thinks the IRS is after him. I had to put him in the hospital yesterday. Mostly what I felt at that moment was annoyance. This woman had a real problem, and in my heart of hearts, I just wanted to get back to thinking about myself. <laughs> 
I asked her if she wanted me to go with her to the hospital. I asked this because I decided I would try to think a little bit less about myself and a little bit more about others. As I asked this, though, I thought, please, God, please say no. Yes, the woman said, thank you, that would be great. Unexpectedly, I felt enormous relief. It was as if space had opened up around me. Every time I have given help when I felt I needed it myself, I've had the same sensation, sometimes quickly, sometimes in a little bit, that there is space around me, that I have more options than I think. It is generosity which reminds us we're more than our problems. What does belonging mean? It means feeling safe. It means feeling accepted. It has nothing to do with what country you were born in or your parents were born in. The easiest way to feel safe is to offer patience, offer help. When we do this, we're forced to step out of ourselves and we're reminded that the world is greater than our imagination. When we offer help, right? when we offer patience, when we offer love and support, it opens up space where others can now belong. So I want to challenge us, like Jesus, like Joseph, like Martin Luther King Jr., like Edith Cohen, who's on our $50 note. Right? Do you know about her? She was, um, she was a champion for women's rights, children's rights, and immigrants' rights, and she was the first female um, election elected member of the parliament. But all these individuals, you know what they did when they didn't belong, right? Where, when they didn't fit in, when they were in a place that made them feel very uncomfortable, they found their sense of belonging in God. And then they opened up the space around them with that newfound sense of confidence and hope and offered help and love and support to others who didn't belong, who didn't fit in. And together they formed community. And together they changed the world. And so can we. We have that same opportunity today to first realize that we matter to God, that God cares about us, that, that we belong to him. And that as we solidify that sense of identity and security in God, that we can also look outward and look around us at the people who don't fit in and who are on the fringes and who are marginalized, who have no voice, and then to stand up for them and with them and create that change and create that community that can make our church and, and, and our country and our culture and everything around us a better place and a safer place where people can feel like they belong. So it is my prayer that we can find our worth in God and that we can have that faith that he's with us always. Thank you. <laughs>